Hello, hello. Hey, yeah. Tyler. Uh, maybe let's let's start off with where are both of you based right now, and, and are you safe? Because I, I, you know, I'm not sure. I know where Tyler Willis is located. Tyler Dykeman, where where are you located right now? Uh, I'm in uh, not so sunny San Francisco right now, but um, happy to say that uh, the last few days have been infinitely better than the previous few weeks. So I'm optimistic that we're headed on a positive trend here. So so no so it's less smoky. I can actually go outside now. So that is a that is a that is a big change. So who thought that'd be a highlight of 2020, being able to go outside? And and Tyler, uh, other Tyler, how how is it in Boulder? Uh, it's great in Boulder. It's uh, it's sunny. The smoke has uh, cleared up. We had we had our own fires a couple of weeks ago, and uh, now we're you know sitting pretty. So life's good. Cool. Um, let's start with you, Tyler. Let's, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a bit of your background and explain what you do today. Sure. Uh, so I am Tyler Willis. I am the co-founder and COO of Unsupervised, which is an enterprise AI company. Uh, basically, we help very large companies uh, understand and use the complexity of their data to find opportunities to move metrics that matter to them. Uh, so we're helping companies address risk or uh, you know, uh, increase upsells or decrease churn or really whatever metric matters in their business. Um, I started that about uh, three years ago with my co-founder, Noah Horton. Uh, who also was the co-founder of the first startup I ever worked at, where uh, they convinced me to drop out of college to run marketing at 19. Uh, and we uh, grew that company. It's called Involver, up to about 2 million customers. It was one of the first uh, SaaS softwares that sold to uh, CMOs. Uh, and that was acquired by Oracle in 2012 to build out Oracle Marketing Cloud, which obviously since that day has had you know, a bunch of billion-dollar acquisitions glomped onto the platform. Uh, so now it's a very big business. Uh, and after that acquisition, I started angel investing and I uh, met Tyler right around that point when I was starting. And, uh, you know, one of my first checks uh, ever written was to LoungeBuddy. And uh, it's been a, a wild eight-year ride since. So before we go to uh, Tyler Dykeman, I, I got to ask, did you ever imagine Oracle bidding for a social network? Uh, well, we were more social marketing software. And the, the big trend in enterprise software was... Uh, uh, it used to all be bought centrally from CIOs, and now you have lines of business that we're buying as well. Uh, that's kind of the magic of SaaS. Um, and that trend started in you know, 2006, 2007. We were kind of right on the first cusp of that. And there was a point in our market where every big enterprise player bought one. So there were you know, five leaders in the space, and yeah, four of us sold within two months of each other. Yeah. Uh, and soon Oracle will be selling TikTok uh, placements. Yeah, there you go. Cool. Um, let's go to Tyler Dykeman. Tell us a bit of the background before you started LoungeBuddy. So how did you get to a point where you were a founder? So I'm certainly not new to the world of being a founder. This is the uh, fourth company that I founded or co-founded or was early employee in. So I guess technically three founding slash co-founding and then uh, one other one that I was an early employee in. So startups have essentially been basically almost my entire career. It's almost all I know, although now I'm in the in the big corporate world, uh, being being an employee of American Express at this point. So uh, it started off back uh, back in high school. I started a technology consulting company where uh, in Tampa, Florida, where I grew up. And from there, continued running that through college, uh, co-founded a tech startup right out of college that uh, we had we had received some funding from um, from Peter Thiel from Founders Fund and from some other uh, investors, including an investor that eventually, over time, uh, 
led me on a path to 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 meeting Tyler Willis. So uh, you know, oftentimes you know you, you you end up in a place where it's all of those other actions that you took many many years before that that get you get you to a uh, you know get you to another direction and. Uh, Lounge Buddy was was uh, conceived in in 2012, and then we really started kicking it into high gear in 2013. So tell us a bit more about that starting. So 2012, how did you come across the idea? What what inspired you to start Lounge Buddy? And for people that aren't familiar with it, what was Lounge Buddy? Sure. So the the general overview of what Lounge Buddy does is it helps travelers to have a better airport experience, and the way we do that is by matching the traveler's needs with the right experience in the airport at the right time. Now, as the name implies, that typically means an airport lounge. Now, for those who are unaware of these magical, mystical places, uh, airport lounges are those uh, private uh, locations in airports that have things like complimentary food and beverage, places to relax, great Wi-Fi, it's a more comfortable environment, showers, uh, some have spas and game rooms and lots of other stuff. So at the end of the day, it's probably the most tolerable experience in the airport, particularly when uh, there's so much other uncertainty that exists in the airport today. And uh, the, the way that the concept came about was I, I've been quite an avid traveler, travel enthusiast. I've been to almost 90 countries at this point. I've flown almost 3 million miles and, you know, at the time, even then, I almost flew through 2 million miles. So I certainly knew my way around the airport and had become quite accustomed to using airport lounges. But I realized that there was no good information about airport lounges. The information that existed before Lounge Buddy was extremely fragmented, was highly inaccurate. Um, there was there was no unified place for, for getting access and or, or for getting information about access. And, and frankly, there's just a lot of mystery around the whole industry. And then, then if you look on the other side of the lounge side of things, you know, these lounges were originally designed to, to cater to the most valuable travelers in the world, those with top tier elite status or flying first or business class. Um, but the model changed and the model changed to focus on uh, what's, what's known as um, ancillary revenue in the airline industry, which is essentially unbundling of, of products, you know, in, in the travel world. Yeah. And that really started, uh, uh, call it 2005, give or take, you know, early 2000s, um, where, you know, buying a ticket was really that. You got your seat and then you had the opportunity to purchase other things like baggage, um, seat assignments, uh, priority boarding, that kind of stuff. And, you know, we saw that airport lounge was an opportunity there that was really missed. Um, and as I'm sure, you know, many other entrepreneurs, maybe even those that are that are on this meeting probably know, um, you know, variable demand is a is a real thing. And oftentimes when you deal with highly perishable inventory, like a restaurant, you know, visit or in this case, uh, airport lounge booking, um, being able to bring in the right number of travelers at the right time and at the right price point um, can can be very valuable. So uh, we saw that opportunity. Uh, and knew that there there was a way to really match travelers who were looking for a better airport experience, right, with these airport lounges that are looking for additional ways to generate revenue. And then for those travelers that already had access to airport lounges, helping them understand what options they had available 
and then um, being able to allow them to be a part of this community where they could share their photos, ratings, reviews, information, and then also learn about, um, you know, which, uh, which lounge was right for their needs at that given time. So that's very cool. Big opportunity, make travel more enjoyable, help, help basically win-win-win solution. So you had, this was your fourth startup. What was the first thing you did? You, you had the idea, I guess you had the co-founder. Did you go raise money right away? Did you go try to sign up lounges? Did you try to get customers? What was, what was your initial approach? What, you know. So, so I'm, you know, I'm lucky to have uh, two other co-founders, um, you know, came up with the concept July of 2012. And for the first six months, it was research, research, research. And really what we, what we looked at this opportunity first was, is this really a cool project or a great business? Because before you start pitching to investors, the first thing you got to figure out is like, what really is the scale of this kind of opportunity? If you can't present that to investors from the very beginning, then you're going to get a lot of come back to me later or it's nice to meet you or, or maybe come back to me later and then you never hear from them again kind of scenarios. But uh, it doesn't make you look good as an entrepreneur, I'll, I'll tell you that much. So, so we knew that, um, that researching, particularly you know, a concept that existed in other industries, but never existed in this specific category of the travel world, you really needed to come prepared with a lot of research. Because frankly, in terms of like the value of airport, the airport lounge industry and that kind of stuff, there's no published reports about that. There's no public information accessible. There's no, there's no Gardner report on how big the market is and the trends? No, no. And we actually talked to several of the people that made those kind of reports to try and get that information. <laughs> They didn't know. So um, we had to make a lot of educated guesses, right? And uh, we had to provide a lot of supporting documentation that, that came along with those educated guesses. So that was from, you know, call it July until the end of 2012. And then, uh, you know, circa March, April, May, give or take the following year, um, we, uh, we knew that we wanted this to be our full-time focus. So we... Um, we stopped doing other things that we were working on and, uh, and started, started focusing 100% on LoungeBuddy. Now, of course, LoungeBuddy had not raised any money at this point um, and continued to build out, well, started to build out the beta version of our product. And it, it basically, I, I, I want to say it was around May or June at that point that we started having our initial conversations with investors. But the initial conversations, and when I say investors, I'm talking angels, not VCs. Um, but we were starting to put together our list of potential uh, venture capitalists as well. And, you know, the way that we defined, you know, what we were looking for in terms of, of funding was when we were looking at angels, we were looking at people who would write a check from anywhere from, say, 10000 to maybe 250000 And then on the VC side of things, you know, on the low end, probably 250000 up to several million dollars. But, you know, one thing that I learned from previous startups is that raising money is not the accomplishment that you should be celebrating. It's meeting specific milestones that might enable you to then get that fundraise to then accelerate all of the things that you're already doing or have already accomplished, Right. Um, if you say, 
you know, I can't start a business or I can't make any progress whatsoever unless I raise money, you're probably not thinking about your business in the right way. Cool. So I'm, I'm going to stop you there because there's a lot, lot to unpack here. Um, and, and your experience is coming, coming through. Um, so let me recap what I heard. First six months, basically research, prove there's a market. The next few months, get serious and go full time. And then you start thinking about raising money with explicitly saying angel investors, venture investors, and not we need money to survive, but we need money to reach specific milestones. Is that correct? So a bit more clear, were you at this point, had you hit the floor running? Had you talked to, had you built the product? Have you built like scrapes, some initial information together? Or was it, okay, we've now done our research and we know what we want to do. And then what were these milestones? And then after I hear that question, I have a couple of questions for uh, the other Tyler. Sure. So if I, if I miss any, just, just call yeah. me on it. I'm not intentionally dodging any of your questions there. So uh, we, we at, at the point of 2013, we were knee deep into building our beta product. And at the same time, we were putting together, fleshing out our business model and identifying all these potential investors that we'd like to reach out to. Um, what we found, though, it, uh, in regards to the outreach of investors, the best thing that you can do is reach out to them first when you're not asking for something and build some kind of report, build some kind of relationship, right? Um, one thing that, that I've learned, at least in the Silicon Valley world, but I think it extends in, you know, many other parts of the world, I think really, you know, just the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial world, I think, is, is probably a better accurate gauge of this is that pretty easy to get in front of almost anybody once and if you got something good to say right and you can say that in 10 or 15 minutes then you can probably get another conversation with them so that first time that you get in front of them be prepared you know what you want to ask for and i know sometimes the saying goes you know if you ask for money you'll get advice and if you ask for advice you'll get money um you know i would i would add a third on there which is that um, you know, just, just start with an introduction and, and say what you're working on and ask if, if they, if something like this gets them excited, if, if there are any other entrepreneurs you think they should meet, if there's something that they can do to help you, that's a really, really easy ask that makes them feel like they've helped to contribute in your success. And it also gives you an opportunity to follow back up with them, um, you know, at a future date. But if you ask for that check the first time you interact with somebody, especially if you're an early stage um, entrepreneur, unless you have proven yourself with a previous company with a big exit before, then you may not set yourself up for actually building that relationship. Because one thing I've learned is that um, investors want to invest in people that they know, people that they trust, people that they feel comfortable with. So you've got to at least have a few touch points before you ask for that check. So that's an interesting uh, segue. So I'm gonna to go to Tyler. Well, let's, uh, first, I have a few questions related to that, but first, tell us a bit of background on how you look at investing, what do you invest in, how do you become an investor? Yeah, sure. I, I'll just actually very briefly, let me like underscore what Tyler just said. Because yeah. I, I also get a lot of people saying they're, they don't wanna be pesky or they don't wanna like reach out to an investor or make an ask before they're ready or what have you. And the reality is like on the other side of the table, like both, like people like that, right? Like my, in fact, one of my biggest complaints is when people ask me for, 
you know, something that I can easily help with. And I think it's cool. And I think it's exciting. And then like, I don't hear from them for nine months. I'm like, hey, tell me if it worked, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, keep me in the loop. I'm excited about stuff. And I think that kind of, uh, you know, is a, is a good lead into why I invest. Um, and so basically in 2012, we sold the company and I, you know, I was working on another startup and I kind of just live and breathe startups. And I find the world very interesting. I like innovation. I like new things. I'm very kind of novelty seeking and curious. Um, and, uh, and I had a few friends that were starting companies and I had some liquidity. Uh, and so it was just a very easy, in fact, I remember I was like sitting at a bar with a friend and I said, man, I really wish I had enough money to invest in like, you know, dozens of companies because diversification is so important in investing. And he's like, well, just get started. And like, you'll figure out where you get the cash for the rest of it later. Um, and that was really the prompt in is I just, I thought it was always cool. I thought it was always interesting. I love working with people that are building the future. And so I, so I started investing and over the course of the last eight years, I've refined that thesis in, or I guess I kind of always knew it intuitively, but what it, I figured out how to describe it, um, which is I don't have a thesis. I just back really good people. Um, and it's a really lazy, uh, or it sounds like a really lazy way of saying that, but it's basically that people know their business far better than I ever will. I didn't know, you know, airport lounges and travel was such a big market until I, until I met with Tyler, until I understood what he was building, until I understood the insights he, he had developed into the market. Um, so I find myself as a founder, you know, going on the journey of intuition to proof on something that I know well. And as an investor, I'm just looking for what do other people know well where they're going from intuition to proof and how can I go along for the ride? So now let's get to the story. How did you meet Tyler? He mentioned that you got an introduction. So tell us about how you met Tyler and then how did he approach you about lounge budding? Why were you interested? And I'm going to hear what Tyler's version of the story is. Yeah, uh, we, we had a, a, a mutual friend who I, I believe I, I kind of shared with Tyler, uh, hey, you know, this might be a good guy to bounce some ideas off of. You know, he's early, he's early stage. He's, you know, just had an exit. He's been on this journey a little bit. He's starting to do investing. Uh, he's in Silicon Valley, like knows, knows some stuff, whatever. I, I don't exactly know what the intro was, uh, but he connected us uh, via that. Um, and it really just started with a series of conversations, much like what Tyler's talking about here. Of like, here's some stuff we're working on, on the product side. And here's why we think this is such a cool opportunity in a big market. Um, and that was a point where I started learning. Like, it was like eye-opening for me. <laughs> of like, wow, this is really cool. And you can do some really interesting stuff on this. And, you know, the birth of mobile creates a lot of new interesting things here. And APIs and access to open web interface, like open websites and being able to like access aggregators, like this is very cool. Uh, and so that just became a, a, you know, again, a kind of a series of conversations that ended up leading to, uh, you know, me asking if I could uh, be one of the earliest investors. So did you proactively ask or did Tyler ask you? Tyler, keep me honest here. Which, which one was it? <laughs> or, or Tyler, did you convince him to ask you? I think I think yeah that, that's that I thinking back I'm I'm not quite sure you know chicken and egg kind of thing there which which came first but um, I, I think you know one other point that that I, I realized while while you were you know talking about that that evolution there uh, Tyler was um, that oftentimes a great way to get an investor really excited about what you do is if you can ask them to connect you with other people they know and make a good impression on them, right? Even if you guys are talking about other random stuff and get those people to then go back to that initial investor and say, wow, Tyler's a really good guy. You know, I don't know what you guys are thinking about doing, but whatever it is, he's got my vote. 
right? And um, I think what happened was the person that connected us uh, said that um, he was going to become a senior advisor to Lounge Buddy. And I think we had also said that, hey, we actually got a few commitments. And I think you had then said, hey, you know, are you interested in having me come in? Because, I mean, one of the things is that, you know, Tyler invested in us uh, before we actually publicly launched our app. We were in a beta, so it was very, very early. Um, and uh, he also got the, the best valuation, of course, at the, at the time. It was convertible debt. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think that certainly, certainly was, was, uh, was a good return for you at, at the end of the day. Um, but, but yeah, I think it was as a result of, you know, getting these positive indicators that came from, you know, someone else that you had known and trusted, and then it come to, you know, know and trust me. So Todd Dykeman, you know, when you went to go to the fundraise, what were you looking from your investors and how are you thinking about it? And, you know, why, you know, why were you excited to what you expect out of Tyler Willis? Because lots of times when we do this, we get VCs who led around and I, I assume Tyler Willis didn't, you know, basically didn't lead around. So I'd love to go through a bit of, okay, you know, went to raise X and what were you expecting out of your investors? How are you choosing which ones to pick? And then what gets you excited about um, working with like Todd Willis? Yeah. So we took a very non-traditional approach to our fundraising, which was some people feel particularly when you're early stage that you have to like round up all these cats. You got to herd all these cats together and get them to sign on this like magical day. And then like, there's a big pen with a feather and a cigar on the side that you, you know, and congratulations, the deal's done or something like that. I, I, I don't smoke cigars, by the way. Uh, I do have a big pen with a feather though. Um, but uh, it's all, you, <laughs> All he signed these days anyway. But, uh, you know, what we did was we actually picked up cash as as either we needed it or as it was presented to us. And so we did uh, convertible debt initially. And I think it was actually five tranches of convertible debt that equaled a total of a million dollars for our initial, you know, angel seed money, whatever you want to call it. And so that happened over the course of a year over five different notes. And as we continue to meet additional milestones, the caps went up on each of those. Because frankly, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do this. There's convertible debt or safes or other other instruments, probably hotter ones today that I haven't been following. But but the point is, is like, you know, actually, um, you know, raising a full round versus getting, you know, convertible debt or equivalent um, can be really easy, really, really simple to do. And it does, you don't have to have these simultaneous closings. So if someone's ready to give you money um, and you can agree on the terms, then take the check and, and move forward. Now, in terms of like why Tyler Willis, um, you really do want to vet your investors because you got to remember that most entrepreneurs from the beginning to some kind of what I call next chapter, because I don't like the word exit, because usually the only people that are exiting at the end are the investors, not the entrepreneurs, um, unless it's like an asset purchase or you, you close up shop, right? Which we certainly don't build the business in order to expect that, um, is, uh, is they're going to stick around with you for a long time. And that, that time period is usually somewhere between five and 10 years. 
right? So, um, you know, which is, which is longer than I think some, you know, personal relationships last. So, you know, is the person on the other side of the table someone that when things are good, are going to get really excited, and when things are bad, are going to be understanding, and instead of saying, what the hell did you do, they're going to say, how can I help, you know, get us back on track? Because we're in this together. We are a team. How can I help you, right? So for us, it was either I wanted really dumb money where they would just stay out of the way and not bother me, right? They'd write the check and maybe they could put a nice stamp on it. And I could say this person invested, but, you know, I'd send them a quarterly newsletter and once a year I'd hear, like, get a thumbs up emoji and that's it, right? <laughs> Um, or they would actually actively try to bring value, but know that, you know, I'm a busy guy. And sometimes I just need people to get out of the way and focus on what I do. And Tyler was absolutely in that latter camp of, you know, how can I be helpful? What's going on? You know, you know, are, are you maybe feeling down right now? Cause I know you got a lot on your shoulders. If you want to talk through it kind of thing, right? Like not only being like, helpful and connecting us with other people, but like being a good human being, right? And, and that's the kind of thing that we really needed on our side. Because I mean, one thing a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs don't like to talk about, but this is one hell of an emotional roller coaster, yeah. you know? And if it's not, then you probably aren't putting your whole heart and soul into the business. And so you want to make sure that all the people around you are going to be supportive and not going to add to that pressure um, even though you, you know, you'll probably add to your own. So, I'm, Tyler Willis, I'm, I'm, I'm bluffing here, but I want to, I want to, I want to uh, uh, dive in on top of that. I, the so a couple of things. One is uh, Tyler's lies are, are far too kind. Uh, he and the team did obviously all of the work, uh, and he gave me. I uh, actually, uh, you gave me, I think, one of the nicest compliments I've ever gotten on the investing side, which was. Uh, I, I think at one point you're like, you know, it's kind of like you're like the VP of common sense. Like I can just like call you and like bounce around ideas and like like be a you know good sparring partner kind of thing. And now I mean seriously to this day, like one of my favorite compliments I've ever gotten. But when I think about like what, like watching from the other side, like the stuff that that Tyler did absolutely amazingly and is highlighting here very like very directly is uh, there was like zero thing that could stand in the way of momentum, right? Like. Oh, well, like, uh, you know, we're not going to like wait for the, the momentum of having to round up a bunch of investors for a single close. We're just going to keep going. We're going to make progress. We're going to like do all the research and, and you know, build the beta of the product before we were you know, raising money. There's no, there was never like a gate that could stop like Tyler and the lounge money team from making forward progress. And I think that's just such an important quality in, in building companies. And then the other part was like the grit of the, of, you know, as Tyler just highlighted, like this is a five to 10 year journey of incredibly high stress and you will pile just bricks of stress upon your shoulders. Uh, and it's, it's hard. You know, there's a lot of people that get to your, you know, whatever. And it's like, it's working, it's kind of working. And, you know, like it's, you see the future and go, wow, two years, it's going to be great. Uh, and then, you know, somebody comes knocking with like, oh, do like a $10 million acquire or whatever. Uh, and people are just like, yeah, just get me out of here. Like, <laughs> I'm done with this job. Uh, and so the, just the sheer like grit and will of the Lounge Buddy team was just awesome and incredible to see. So, like, so if anybody takes away anything from this, I think that's the two things is to be a good founder. You have to not let anything get in your way and never stop. 
couple of things I want to unpack from what I just heard from both of you. First of all, it was a rolling close or a crunch close that, hey, I'm going to raise a million dollars off sequential closes or sequential. Um, so tell us, how do you feel comfortable with that? Because usually, you know, when I'm looking at making an investment, I want to feel that there's 12 to 18 months runway. And especially, in this, and maybe this uh, was different five, six years ago, but now I worry, okay, there has to be other people to come behind me if I'm doing 200,000 this million rounds. So how do you feel comfortable writing a check so early on? Yeah. Um, at the risk of possibly being too direct, I, like, I have no intention of, uh, of insulting our host here or anything. Uh, I actually, I think this is a mistake that investors make. Um, and I, I don't think that investors should be like elbowing and, and conniving to be the last dollar in. I think you miss out on great opportunities far more often than you protect yourself from downside losses. Um, and like the reality of this is some startups will fail and that is okay. That's built into the model. Um, and if you have conviction and if you have conviction early and if you're able to see the, uh, this sounds so trite, but like if you're able to see the future or like whatever, something, you're able to see that there is something there that the rest of the world doesn't see. I think the absolute best thing you can do from both a ethical standpoint, a supportive founder standpoint and a money return standpoint is to put the money in like you're, you know, and, and sure, you know, valuations can be different for early investors and what have you. But like the real thing is just when you have conviction, like act. Right. Break um, that far well, too yeah. One, one clarification point, too, is that when we set out to raise, it wasn't for a million. It ended up being a million, right? And um, each note had a different cap, right? So our earliest investors were rewarded. And, and actually, I, I think looking at the first cap versus the last cap, were rewarded almost five times as handsomely as, as our earliest investors. So, I mean, when you... And, and, I, and I know I didn't say this at the very beginning, but just to fill everybody in, um, uh, April 1st of last year to so 2019, uh, LoungeBuddy was acquired by American Express. And um, I think every single one of our investors were beyond delighted with the outcome. We didn't um, uh, release the, the, the exact financial figures, but um, every, everybody was, was beyond delighted, I think. So, um, you know, what, what ended up happening though, was I think we were looking to pick up a couple of hundred thousand bucks to see, you know, how we could prove out, you know, our next set of milestones that we wanted to reach. And while, you know, we were, you know, very uh, frugally spending that money, right, our existing investors also said, hey, I want you to meet some of my other friends, mm -hmm. friends or investors, right, <laughs> that might be um, that might be interested. And that, that's actually another thing that I think is really, really valuable to look for in an investor is who else can that person connect you to that might also write a check? Because even if that pers first person, whether they write you a check for 50 bucks or $10 million, right? Getting someone to actually put money down on something, it, it really isn't the amount. And, you know, I will say, I think, Across that million bucks we raised, I think it was across more than 20 investors. So if you average it out, the average check size is actually under like 50 or 50 grand, give or yeah. take. Um, and that was okay, right? It, I mean, it was a lot of work and, you know, a lot of, a lot of signatures and that kind of thing. But almost every single one of those investors 
ended up also coming into our A. Wow. And so, you know, being able to have that, right, that, that in, it, 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 it's, it's like giving somebody a discounted trial to start at the beginning, but knowing that you can then um, come back and ask them, you know, ask them to re-up if you can, you know, show that you've, you've met some great milestones. So I'd like to start talking about the milestones, what happened after he raised that million. So first, just one last question about that. So when Tyler Willis wrote the check-in, he apparently became the VP of Common Sense. But was there that understanding beforehand? Was there any communication? Or was it, hey, write a check, we'll see what the relationship does? What were you guys expecting from each other other than to build a Tyler Dick Dykeman would build a big company? I'm, I'll, I'll jump in. But the, uh, I, the only thing I was expecting was that, like, this was somebody who I met and I built a, you know, a conviction in the back that, like, Tyler was going to chase after this with his whole heart. Uh, and, and I thought there was a big market opportunity there to capture it. Um, that was the thing that I was signing up for. And what I, uh, what I said at the time is very similar to kind of what I say now, which is I will provide as much value as you want or not. Like I want to be the found, I want to be the investor that I would want on my cap table, which is like, hey, if I text you at you know nine o'clock at night and say, hey, I need some advice, I've got this big thing going down, right? Um, then answer. Uh, but like, don't send me an email that is like no subject line and just a link to a tech from you know press release of a new competitor that came out or something. Like, don't do that. So <laughs> I, what I try to do is not be anxiety as a service, which I think a lot of investors do, uh, and instead just I, I'm a you know pull not push model. Like, call me anytime you need anything. Call me anytime you want to chat. I'll chat about anything. Uh, and other than that, I'll stay out of the way. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll say one way I was able to engage with with our you know group of investors um, early on and and potential investors, people that I really admired was um, I sent out and you could do it either monthly or quarterly. I think I might have started monthly and then I moved to quarterly um, a a newsletter that basically gave bullet points on our progress on our focus areas and on areas where I needed some feedback or help, right? And so it was, it was one of these where it was mobile optimized. So somebody could, you know, pull it up on their iPhone. If they really wanted to read it, you know, very, you know, very carefully, it might take them four minutes to get through. If they just wanted to browse through, okay, I want to see the revenue section or I want to see the like where I can help Tyler, you know, with stuff, right? 30 seconds. And, then they could just, you know, I put everybody on BCC, so it wasn't like, you know, sending a whole bunch of, you know, unnecessary emails all back and forth. And I mean, that worked great. But one thing that I did was, you know, when I set milestones, I put them in two camps. I said milestones that we expect to hit and milestones that are kind of stretch milestones that would be amazing if we hit them, but we're certainly not expecting that. Um, and, and then also like where we didn't succeed. And that's one thing that I think founders, especially early stage founders forget is that if everything is rainbows and unicorns and perfection, right, you're not real. And a lot of investors, a lot of smart investors will see right through that. So, um, having said that though, right, when you have your first meeting with someone, you may not want to go into like everything we've done is wrong kind of thing. Right. But, um, you know, one additional piece that I, that I found was, was valuable was 
If there's an investor that you want to talk to, but you don't want to ask them for money yet, which again is the path I highly recommend, and you want to maybe ask them for money in three to six months, then tell them what your milestones are for the next three to six months that you feel very, very confident you're going to hit, right? Don't talk about the stuff that you're unsure of whether you're going to hit. Talk about the stuff that you know for sure you're going to hit. Or if you don't hit those, then maybe you're in the wrong business kind of thing, <laughs> right? And, um, and by doing that, by setting that up, then when you have that next conversation with them, you can say, oh, by the way, just wanted to share with you, here are all the things that we talked about we wanted to hit. We hit all of those things, and here's all the other good stuff that we had. So that at least you've got some really good news to share rather than totally shooting for the moon and then knowing you know, that you're going to come up short. Very good advice. I love it. Um, and so let's let's push forward a bit. So you raised a million dollars. What are the milestones? What did success look like for you over the next 12 to 18 months? What You know, you got the money. What did you have to accomplish and how did you go about doing it? I know it's a really wide question, but love to go back in time to figure that out. So that million dollars was raised over 15 months. Oh, wow. So that started in September, uh, maybe July of, of 2013 and finished up fall of 2014, give or take. Uh, and our sole focus at that point was building the Lounge Buddy community. So it was not the purchasing lounge access. It was the you know, the Yelp or TripAdvisor of airport lounges aspect. Totally free, right? An app you could download. But it was all about how can we grow this community without spending a cent on customer acquisition? Um, because we didn't consider them customers. We considered them members, right? They weren't paying us anything, so they weren't quite yet a, a customer, but they were contributing to the community and they certainly brought tremendous value. So they earned that membership aspect, right? And uh, I think we lose Tyler. Uh, uh, internet glitch here. Oh. By the time we got dollars, can you guys hear me? Now we can, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, so, so uh, you know, solely focused on building the community. By the time we got through that million dollars of fundraise, we had close to a million Lounge Buddy members. And we had spent zero on marketing, zero on customer acquisition. Um, and, and I mean, of that million that we had raised, we had spent less than half of it. So, I mean, we did this with like, you know, call it half a million bucks um, worth of actual spend. Uh, and then the shift basically came to how do we monetize um, the next set of travelers, right? It could be some of those people that originally downloaded the app, right, to become a member who would then convert to become a customer. Right. But also, you know, who else is out there that actually doesn't already have access that wants to buy access? And that's where we then went out to to raise this uh, our, our one and only like formal round of funding, um, our Series A. And how much easier was the Series A? You've got a million customers or a million members. Um, you've got what looks like 20 great angel investors or investors. So was it, was it like a, a one-week job? Like, well, how different was experience and, and what, why was it different if it was different? Our lead investor uh, was someone that I had a conversation with before we even launched our original app. So it had happened almost 18 months earlier where I had just shown him a, you know, very colorful 
uh, low tech presentation on what we were working on. And I'm just like, hey, you know, not looking for anything, but what do you think of this thing? And he's like, oh yeah, you know, some of it's cool. Some of it doesn't sound very smart. You know, I might rethink this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's true. I didn't really put a lot of thought into that stuff. I should probably think about that some more. And it was kind of back and forth, you know, every three to six months to just check in. And then eventually, you know, I said, hey, look, like we're ready for you. Want to see what you think on on whether you think this is this is uh, the the next step. And it was actually over breakfast. I didn't give him a presentation or anything like that. I remember I was in Dublin, Ireland, while he was there for a conference as well. And um, okay. he's basically like, you know what? I think you've really been killing it. You've been showing great progress. I'm totally in. And it, you know, this wasn't after I created some elaborate presentation or anything like that. I built that trust. I built that rapport. Right. And, um, uh, you know, after he came in as a lead, almost every other person that came in on that round to fill it out were our existing investors. So, so Tyler Willis, um, when you heard an A rounds coming together, what was, what were your thoughts and was it a no brainer said, here, just take my money. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was like two, two minutes of consideration. Yeah. Uh, and actually, and the point that, that, uh, that Tyler is, uh, is not highlighting here that is so the trust point is huge, right? Like, like you, like you built trust with folks so that it was an easy decision when the decision point was there. And that's true for me too, right? It's like, yeah, I've seen the team operate for a few months. It was obvious, right? Um, the, uh, the, the second part though, is it also taught other people the business. Like, your, your job as a founder is to go from like intuition to proof. And at every stage of the, the journey, you're getting more and more people to like see the same thing you see. And this wasn't necessarily like a, like an obvious from day one thing. That's why there was an opportunity to build a business here. Right. Like Tyler figured out something that no one else in the world figured out. Um, and, and so by doing these kind of small conversations with folks, it also helped people see, Oh, okay. There's moat here. There's network. Effects. Oh, okay. There's, marketplace dynamics that's very interesting oh, okay there's member dynamics that's very interesting i don't want to get too deep into like the secret sauce or anything but like you know over the course of uh, a, a period of time people it starts percolating people's head of like ah i see what they see and that becomes very exciting and you know one one thing on your moat piece right this was one of the um the, the sense of urgency that we shared with our investors which was look guys we actually this is wild wild west right now we do have an opportunity to build that moat, but if we don't do it quickly, right, and, and the right way, then someone else will see that opportunity, will come in and steal it away from us. Interesting, so while you were raising, there was a bit of urgency. Uh, I've got, a, we're getting close to our allocated time, so I have a couple questions. It sounds like it was all up and to the right and easy, easy sailing. Um, no. So how did you know when you were having difficulties and how did you get through that, Tyler? Um, well, I mean, I think our, our initial goal was to try and monetize earlier than that. But as we kept, you know, growing and growing and growing our membership base, right, we realized actually we should probably continue focusing on that uh, while we figure out the monetization piece. But, you know, to me, especially being as if this was my fourth startup and the, the two startups in the middle uh, really delayed monetization for a long time. And I think that ended up being, um, you know, a real challenge as a result, creating, creating real challenges as a result, because you come so, uh, so attached to your investors or your success can potentially be 
dictated by whether they continue to give you money or not, right? Um, they could control your, your destiny. Um, of course, being frugal can help put you back in the driver's seat there. So uh, the, the other thing that, that, we, that we realized was these airport lounges have no inventory management system. So in order to be able to actually process bookings that people would buy access to, we had to build that for them and give it to them for free. And so basically what Resi and OpenTable did for the restaurant industry by providing them, you know, a tablet at the front with software and management and all of that stuff, we had to do that for airport lounges. And that's a whole other product, right? And we, we got to scrap. So I went to lounge in February. Was it was I probably using your software when I checked into that lounge in February? Say that again. I, I last time I traveled was February. I went to Spain. Don't ask about the timing. Um, I used the, I went to the lounge. So was I probably using you your? You were software? probably using Lounge Boss. That's right. That's that's very cool. Exactly. So I mean, that's that's you know an, another piece of this, right? That we kind of thought we'd have to do something from the technology side to support them, but had no idea that we had to also train them from you know, writing down things on a clipboard to using an iPad to actually, you know, check in people. And I mean, it was for the industry revolutionary. For other industries, it was like, well, everybody does that today kind of thing. But in this industry, because they were so far behind in technology, that, that was a requirement. So, you know, we, we, there, were, there were plenty of bumps along the way. There were plenty of, of learnings. There, there, there was, a, you know, a lot of challenges, too, with hiring great talent because we weren't the hottest startup in the world. You know, we weren't on the front page of, of TechCrunch, you know, every week. We hadn't raised millions and millions and millions of dollars. We weren't paying the best salaries, right? But we did have a unique mission, we did have a unique value prop, and, and you know, everybody had, you know, direct impact on our final product, right? And, you know, good culture and a lot of other things that, that, that helped us there. But, you know, those, those were real challenges at the time. Um, you know, when you say, well, all we need to do is build Lounge Boss and things will be good. Well, who the hell is going to build it? We don't even have anybody to build it, right? And, oh, by the way, if we hire somebody, we can't pay them $250,000 a year, right? We've got 90 grand that we can devote. We'll give you some stock and we promise it'll be worth a lot in the future. You've got to believe us. You know, that, that's hard. Cool. Um, just conscious of time. Last question um, for either of you. For founders or team members looking at building something in travel, the future looks very uncertain now. So would you, would you start another travel company right now? Or what would you give to a team building something in the travel space right now? Either Tyler can answer this or both. You want, you want to give your, your two cents on this first? I've already, uh, I'm on record as uh, I just follow your intelligence in this space. So, I'll demur to you. So, you know, if, if, if you guys remember back to the beginning of, of what we talked about, we started the research phase about, it was actually a little over a year before we launched our product publicly, right? So, if you're just thinking about starting something, you got to ask yourself, what does the travel world look like in 2022, right? And if you can say to yourself, I think we have, you know, more blue skies ahead, which I would say absolutely I think we do, then it is worthwhile to consider. Um, but you've just got to be sure you are so passionate and so laser focused and so frugal along the way 
because uh, there will be some aspects of the travel industry that will recover very quickly. And some already have like vacation home rentals in certain destinations, but there will be other areas of the travel industry that will continue to lag or may not exist as we know them forever. So just, you know, you got to be laser focused. And if you can find some niche that today is being very underserved that you think is going to be a really big opportunity in the future. And you think you can bring some unique value to that starting in 2022 and beyond go for it. I, Thank you both. I, I, will, I will do one, one quick thing on this, which is like unrelated to travel. Cause again, I just, when somebody pitches me something in travel, I just text Tyler and say, what do you think? Uh, but the, uh, in general, I think there's a lot of fear right now because of COVID, because of, you know, fires, because of whatever else. Um, and, and this is a scary time we're in. But I, and, and I think it should be a scary time to be a public company. I think it should be a scary time to be a unicorn. I think it should be a scary time to be somebody who has uh, a lot of debt and a lot of money bet on stuff continuing to work exactly the same way uh, you know, over the course of the next 18 months. I, early stage startups don't fit that profile. Like this is the single best moment in the last decade to start an early stage company um, because you have no baggage. Uh, no one is expecting you to maintain your business because it doesn't exist. Um, all you are doing is building and you're building in the phase where, uh, where you have frugality, where you have, where all the things that you have to do anyway right now are rewarded. And that's incredibly powerful. And like, Honestly, the, the stuff that I'm seeing get built now is incredible. I mean, we literally locked the world's introverted nerds in a room for six months. And like, if that's not a recipe for building cool stuff, I don't know what is. So like, I'm very, very bullish on the early stuff. I mean, you, you're basically building your foundation on the new normal versus trying to convert an, a foundation on what was before, right, to today. Exactly. Cool. Both Tyler's, thank you so much for your time. I feel like I could do another one just talking about the acquisition. I, Tyler Willis, I, could, I would love to hear more about your philosophy investing. I, I'll have to wait for a future conversation.